So begin today with a little postscript to last week's message in this series, Halts, standing for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Powerful moods, powerful states of being that can be destructive if we don't learn to halt, to pause while we're in the midst of them. Well, P.S. last week to A is for angry. I read about it this, uh, a couple days ago in the Harvard Business Review. Um, author named Judith Glazer with the title of the article, Your Brain is Hooked on Being Right. It's about the habitual costs of anger. She's writing uh, about um, could be work environments or home environments, places that we may experience kind of habitual anger or distrust or dis-ease. And what happens in those situations, particularly if they're accompanied by a lot of arguing, is that we release a lot of that stress hormone called cortisol that some of you have heard about. And the parts of the brain that we tend to associate with kind of the win-win quality, the strategizing, trust-building, team-building, compassion-building, that gets plowed right over by the older part of our brain, the amygdala, the snake brain, the alligator brain, the brain that says, I win, you lose, because if you win, I lose. And here's the issue, that if we find ourselves arguing on a regular basis, being habitually angry, and we win the argument, ooh, the brain loves that dopamine. (laughs) And the next time we're in another argument... We won't engage the compassion, the trust building, all that stuff. We'll look for that next hook. This is the connection I want to talk about today between the A of angry and the L of lonely. Because if we live in certain ways, we're not allowing ourselves to engage with our natural, noble, I would say the essence of who we are, desire to really connect, we will find ourselves not just more personally lonely, but not recognizing the loneliness of other people got an example of this a number of years ago. I mean, this must have been 18, 19 years ago. I was a younger person. And it was before I was ordained. I'm not that young, folks. <laughs> I was involved in a congregation, and there was a guy in the congregation who was known as kind of a, kind of a heavyweight, kind of a you know, guy who got things done, got stuff done, and also was known as a person who had a little bit of a temper was known to argue with other people and often to get his way and often getting some really good things done. Well, this was a particular Christmas Eve at this congregation and kind of the preparations were going on for the Christmas Eve service and I ran into this guy in the hallway and he looked different. His chest wasn't quite as puffed out as he normally was. He looked a little bit more shrunken, a little bit more quiet and I asked him if he wanted to talk and he kind of went over to the side together and he didn't say much really to me He just looked really forlorn. And he paused a lot, and he kept returning to this phrase. I don't like my life. I don't like my life. I don't like my life. Now, me immediately thought, Charles Dickens, Christmas Eve, a Christmas carol. This is is Scrooge right here, right? A lonely bully with an opportunity for redemption and a new perspective on their life. Well, 
Sadly, Christmas Carol didn't play out at all. Next time I saw this guy at the congregation, he was right back to the same old behaviors. But this is one of the things I've recognized over the years, is that although I try to have as much compassion as I can possibly generate, possibly be as present to people who have been bullied as much as I can, and it's really tough for me to generate compassion and sympathy for people who are bulliers, the two groups often have one thing in common. They know about the reality of human loneliness. When we talk about loneliness, we're talking about the emotional effects of being isolated, of not having your life seen or valued or acknowledged, and perhaps even at the very deepest, saddest, most fearful base of it, feeling that maybe because you are not acknowledged, you are not loved. This is a core human need for true connection, to not be lonely. What starvation is to the body is what loneliness is to the heart. Now, there's a lot of discussion going on, especially in the last 15 or 20 years, about, especially since the rise of all this wonderful gadgetry and technology, that maybe we're a much more lonely society than we ever have been. In uh, probably the most... uh, popular sociology book ever published was a book called Bowling Alone, which talked about the breakdown in social connections in American society in the age of technology. And there's been a whole bunch of other studies about this. Except recently, about the last six months, I read an article in Slate magazine online that actually said, well, no, we're not any lonelier than we ever have been. Bowling Alone is actually wrong in its analysis. But here's the thing. What both those who say we're just as lonely as we ever have been, take that to be good news, take that to be bad news, or folks who say we're lonelier now than we ever have been, what they both agree upon is this, is that the emotional, spiritual, psychological effects of loneliness are devastating for us, unhealthy and harmful to us. I mean, there have been study after study done about people who as they age might live on their own and live in conditions of disconnection and isolation and loneliness, that they get sick much more often and experience earlier deaths than people who are connected to other people as they age. This is one of our core affirmations, our core beliefs at Wellsprings, that we, each of us has a thirst for fulfillment, a desire to truly fill those God-shaped holes with an honest, growing spiritual life, and yet... As we name, unhealthy relationships, materialism, and substance abuse lead to despair and loneliness. Why these three particular things? Well, I've tried them all out at times in my life when I have been lonely. Because they're all always an escape from my loneliness. But they don't really do the job. No 47-inch high-definition television will ever make me as happy as I think it could. So I have to recognize that when I'm eyeing the 60-inch. No unhealthy relationship, no quick fix relationship will ever or as has ever filled my soul. And certainly no abuse of any substance has ever done anything for me except make me lonelier. That is why it is so important to halt when we are lonely, to first recognize simply the fact that we are lonely and not blow right past it in a rush, in a hurry, to move past the loneliness as quickly as we can without first recognizing, hey, there is a deep core need in each of us that needs real authentic relationship. Because the truth is, sometimes loneliness is even a beneficial state. I think that's the biggest fear about loneliness is that it's permanent. 
Sometimes we can recognize that we're just lonely for a time. As my father said to me, coming back from one of my vacations in my first year in the bad old days of all boys uh, hill school when I was boarding and completely miserable and just crying my heart out and playing my little pity party, tiny little violin for myself. And he said to me a truth that I always remember. He said, you're just going to be lonely for a while and then you won't be. It like took the pressure off so I could just accept that I was lonely for that time. Sometimes loneliness, especially in this hypercharged, always connected society, overly busy, overly stimulated society, we may mistake boredom for loneliness. Sometimes we really recognize that we're just bored because we've been going and going and going and going like that Energizer Bunny, except depleting ourselves, not getting charged back up, and we think the minute that we're bored that something's wrong with us, rather than, I think, taking Steve Jobs. His opinion of boredom. He said he's a big believer in boredom. Because in boredom, we have a chance to be curious. That's about that thing about doing a new thing. If you're bored, great. That's an opportunity, he says, to be curious about our lives and to investigate further because out of curiosity comes everything that is good. Sometimes being lonely is the necessary cost of real life change. Sometimes what we belong to or who we belong to is in fact unhealthy and harmful to us and other people. I heard a story not too long ago of a guy named Arno Michaels. He is a reformed neo-Nazi, a man who when he was young was hatefully and violently homophobic and racist, who took all the pain of growing up in an alcoholic and abusive household and externalized all that anger onto other people until he woke up one day, a simple thing. I mean, he was covered in swastika tattoos. He had one in his hand. And an older African-American woman who took his order one day in a fast food restaurant, instead of reacting with fear or revulsion, which would have been completely appropriate, looked at his hand and said, you're better than that. That was an experience for him of positive shaming, of recognizing that if he was truly going to separate himself out from where he had found belonging unhealthily, it would mean that he was going to be lonely for a while. And sometimes loneliness is exactly what we need if we wish to grow. I think of one of the images from our core beliefs here at Wellsprings, the caterpillar. Now, actually, the happy stuff is about to happen. This is almost a butterfly right here. But imagine the caterpillar going into the chrysalis as we affirm that each of us has capacity for new life. Well, you know what? Most of us know it already. That process of transformation is not easy, and sometimes it involves loneliness. But if we understand that... We can have the capacity to halt and to honor the need for time and to honor the need for space to truly change. Then our loneliness, our being set apart for the time, our time in the chrysalis will truly be productive and we won't be judging ourselves in that moment for not being as happy as maybe we think we ought to be. The first step in making our loneliness productive is to simply recognize that we're lonely. How often we can simply kind of blow past our loneliness and not recognize how powerful we wish to connect and how wisely we can connect. I remember when I was 14 and got a copy of this. <laughs> Tommy by The Who that spawned, I think, one of the worst things in rock and roll, the rock opera. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> Horribly pretentious. Awful. Rock should not have operas. That said, this is an awesome album. It's the story 
of a young boy, many of you know this story, who because of an act of trauma, an act of violence that he witnesses, completely shuts himself down and off from the rest of the world. And that beautiful, plaintive refrain that goes throughout, woven throughout the entire album, see me, feel me, touch me, heal me. See me, feel me, touch me, heal me. This is to recognize where the seeds of loneliness are met by the fruit of kindness in our ability to really perceive another person's being in another person's life. This is what happens sometimes when those of us who wouldn't describe ourselves as lonely are just so freaking busy. We can blow right past someone else's loneliness, almost as if we do not see them. My most beloved story about the power of loneliness healed and the power of kindness to connect, it's a story I've told before, it's a story I'll continue to tell once every 18 to, let's say, 24 months. You know, you're going to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, and I'm not Bruce Springsteen, um, although I really wish I was. Uh, you're going to hear Born to Run. You're going to keep showing up at Wellsprings. You're going to hear me tell this story every 18 to 24 months because it's just that good of a story. And the story is associated with Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock, who for decades was America's preeminent teacher of preachers. Fred Craddock, who tells the story about taking a vacation through the South one summertime and stopping with his wife at a small town in Tennessee at a little cafe that I can never remember the, never, the name of, so I'm just going to call it the, the Pig and Whistle or something southern like that. It sounds, to a northerner like me, sounds southern. It could be completely off base. And they stop for this little place for dinner, and they start to eat their meal, and they see this, this man going from table to table, this kind of silver-haired, gray-haired fox who's going from patron to patron and glad-handing and starting up conversations, and the Craddocks kind of think, no, no, don't come here. Don't come here. Just let us eat our meal in, in peace. And eventually, he gets there. And they start to engage in small talk, and they start to, you know, hopefully kind of, you know, gently with very curt, short answers, push him away and move him on, and he's not moving on. And so... Fred Craddock thinks, I'm going to throw down a 50-cent word that will get him moving on when this man asks Fred Craddock what he does for a living. He says, I teach homiletics. Oh, that's going to be the end of the conversation right there because who knows what homiletics are. And the guy says, oh, you teach preachers how to preach. Well, I got a preacher story for you. <laughs> and uninvited, he pulls up a chair and sits right down at their table. He says, as the Craddock's grown inwardly, I was born not far from here, on the other side of these mountains. And he said, it's, it's never easy in any age and for anyone when a child feels abandoned by a parent. But especially where I grew up in that place in that time, it was incredibly difficult for me in this small town. Because everyone I felt was always asking this question of me. Sometimes they came out right and said it, who's your father? Who's your daddy? I was known in this small town and was bullied in this small town because I went by one name which wasn't my name and it was Bastard. 
My mom would send me in to errands into the center of town on Saturdays. I could feel everyone's eyes boring in on me, asking that question, even if they weren't saying it aloud. Whose boy are you? There was one place, the old man continued, where I actually felt good about myself. There was a young minister, young preacher came to town who, when I would go to see and hear him preach, he actually would make me feel like better about myself. I wouldn't loathe myself for that time, except because I knew I didn't want to be the bastard in church either. I would go in late and I would leave early so that no one could pin me down and call me names. Until this one day, I didn't have my wits about me and I got stuck in that line leaving the congregation and so I tried to make a mad dash for the exit around the side and I almost was to the door and I felt this hand clamp down on my shoulder and I turned around and it was the minister of this church who put both his hands on my shoulder and said whose boy are you? Sternly searching, whose boy are you? And the old man said inwardly, I just felt like dying. This was going to be another place, another place that wasn't safe for me, another place where I was the bastard. And then the minister, the preacher, took his hands off my shoulders and stood back a little bit and smiled. He said, ah, I, I see it now. I see it now. I see the family resemblance. You're a child of God. Now go and claim your inheritance. And the old man at the table grew quiet. He said those were the most important words that anyone ever said to me. You're a child of God. Now go and claim your inheritance. Thank you for listening to my story. And the old man got up, and by this point, the Craddocks knew like they were in the midst of just a gold story. <laughs> and Fred Craddock stuttered out, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we didn't get your name. And the old man, as he was leaving the table, said, My name is Bob Hooper. And Fred Craddock then related to his wife that his father had told him a story that the people of Tennessee had twice elected a man who never knew his father, named Bob Hooper, to be their governor. This is a beautiful old story about the power of belonging, about loneliness healed. And just like when we light that chalice, it's not about what's past, it's about what's present. And so I think now about the children or the families the kids who are likely to be put out, put down, put off, bullied. The child whose expression of their gender doesn't quite match up with what quote-unquote normal expectations are. The child who stutters, the child who is not neurotypical, the child who for whatever reason is the one who is singled out and whose being and whose need to connect is diminished. This is why I love the Fred Craddock story. Because you know what that minister did? He halted. <laughs> he allowed himself to see that child's pain and to remember who that child really was. This is the power of kindness.
It reminds me of what I believe are the two most powerful words that I know from any spiritual tradition. First on top is a word I grew up with but didn't really know much about. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. (laughs) It means divine loving kindness. The word underneath it is pali. Words of the ancient Buddhist scriptures. It is metta, also loving kindness. Now, one of these traditions is associated with a god who sometimes appears as a person, and one of these words of loving kindness is associated for a tradition that really doesn't have any teachings about a personal understanding of God. To me, it doesn't matter. One of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings is that we can experience God without being able to define God. What is most important is that we allow ourselves the opportunity to recognize how powerful our loving kindness can be. How an interaction we can have with other people can be words that can fill up an arid and dry soul. And what it means is that we can recognize that sometimes we have that ability to hide ourselves. To put up that false face and say everything is good and my life is going exactly as I might wish it. When in fact we are dying and tired inside because we won't halt long enough to allow another person to see the reality of who we are and where we are and how we are. Kindness only thrives, and loving kindness can only exist when we get beyond the idea that our idea of another person is actually who they are. Ron, I think you're a great guy, but my idea of you is not you. Loy, my idea of you is not you. Teresa, you and I are married. My idea of you is not you. To enter that space beyond our ideas of what another person's reality is, is to halt. To make a commitment that I think we can only affirm meaningfully time after time after time in our lives. And I know we're all so busy. I know not every interaction can be one of revelation. But that's why it's so important to halt. Because the impending drive and get-go and doing and going and doing and going and doing and going and doing and going will just drive us to the point of distraction which is missing sometimes the people's lives who we need to see because they need us to see them because they are lonely and hurting. And sometimes that is exactly us. To get beyond the idea of who the other person is. To get beyond the idea of the labels that we give to ourselves is to allow the transforming power of loving kindness, which is who we actually, I think, really are, to make the difference for us that it can. Today, maybe that's the new thing, is when you notice that you're just kind of moving on and moving on and moving on and not noticing, that you stop for a moment. And don't see another person as shorthand. And don't see your life in shorthand. And you can inquire. How's it really going? And to be prepared for whatever answer they will give. So that you are there. And not somewhere else. May we allow the power of loving kindness to truly transform us. And to be a bomb 
with a curse of human loneliness. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine source of connection, may we recognize actions that hurt and those that help. May we recognize actions that harm and those that heal. May we recognize that at our base we are truly, each of us, connected to one another and to the very source and center of life itself, that each of us carries around the source and center of life itself within us. May we recognize that divine like, that divine spark within each of us and pause long enough to truly be grateful for one another, not just passed on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing but to know that we are born to connect. May it be so and amen.